You may be seated. At this, this time, we'll dismiss the Access kids fourth grade Tennessee. and under to Access And it's part kids. of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Foster. Well, welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis. If we haven't met, and if we haven't met, I would love to meet you. So hang out afterwards and say, hey, uh, tell me a little bit about you, your story, and, uh, and what you have going on in life. Uh, if you haven't already done so, I invite you to grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, the, the portion uh, Foster was just reading for us. Uh, find that because we're going to be working through that text together this morning. And as you do find yourself in Luke 6, I want to stop and say thank you for your prayers, um, your condolences, your thoughts reaching out to us through the passing of my uh, grandmother and her funeral this week. <clears throat> I was holding it together pretty well. Um, on, on Wednesday uh, until someone pointed out um, a, a bouquet, a, a cluster, whatever that's called, sorry, played football, uh, didn't mess around with too many flowers. Um, but uh, I saw a white cluster of, of roses and uh, it, was, uh, it said from the Axis Church and I just lost it. Um, so you might not even know that you did that, um, but those who took care of that for us, thank you, thank you church for uh, for, for giving financially to pay for those roses. Um, even that is ministry and certainly to me and my heart and I meant a lot to my family. Um, so thank you. Thank you for doing that. Um, really appreciate all that you've done reaching out to us this week. It's been tough. Um, but, uh, my grandma, my mama, um, you can tell if people's from the country based on how they refer to their grandparents. You know that, right? Um, so my mama, um, I'm from the mountains of North Carolina. My mama has been with Jesus for over a week now. Get that. How crazy is that? Um, we should be a little bit bummed that we haven't gotten to see Jesus face to face like she has. There should be some jealousy and envy in the heart of the Christian um, that we're still here and that she's there. Um, I think that's, that should be our posture. 
Um, <clears throat> that's mine during this time. Well, uh, let's get to, to work here. I uh, just want to say thanks. This is uh, our 24th week now, working our way through uh, the book of Luke, uh, a series that we've entitled uh, The Real Jesus. And now for us getting comfortable in our context together this morning, uh, getting to the verses for today, let's start reading, if you don't mind, uh, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 20. Luke chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 20. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, all right, poor, poor in spirit, hungry, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you'll be satisfied. Blessed are those who weep and mourn now, for you will laugh and be comforted. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, on account of Jesus Christ. When that happens, rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. That's the blessing. Now the woes. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received all you're going to get. You've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now in the things of this world, for you're going to be hungry eternally. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep forever. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And then the two verses that we looked at last week, uh, 27 and 28, but I say to you who hear, that's not just who audibly can understand and perceive what he's saying. He's saying those who are leaning into this truth and wanting to understand. There's a difference. Some of us can tolerate even our time this morning. Others can lean in and say, well, what do you have to say? Let's, let's, let's just consider these things. He's saying for those who are leaning in, considering these things, I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So here Jesus is guiding us through what it looks like to live as people who are redeemed, uh, to live as people who are now part of God's kingdom, who are now part of the people of God, okay? And he tells us that these such people are to love their enemies. And then continuing in this line of thought, continuing here in this context, continuing in this teaching, Jesus presses in with us a little bit more. And this is where we have our text for today, starting in verse 29. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Tunic and the cloak being very valuable possessions during this time. And if you were raised in the South, perhaps other places, I just know it was very prevalent in the South, you were taught the principle of turning the other cheek. This is a cultural phrase, though, that had a very unique meaning uh, there in first century Jerusalem. This wasn't speaking of a literal punch in the mouth. This wasn't a, a literal physical altercation that was life-threatening. This is more of a uh, being uh, insulted in a great way. It was an intense insult uh, that had a unique meaningfulness in first century Jerusalem that we, we can't grasp here where we hear this today. Then in verse 30, he says, give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Well, the point here, in Jesus, as Jesus teaches us through 29 and 30, uh, the point here is that Christians, those who have been reborn, those who have been born again, people who have been regenerated by the power of God at work in their hearts, the Holy Spirit is living within them, Christians, true Christians, not just in title or affiliation of a church, but, but Christian. Someone who's been truly made new. All things become new. They're a completely different person. 
a new spiritual dimension is added to their life. Christians, they will be slow and calculated in how they retaliate. They will be slow and calculated. You see, the instinct of the healthy Christian shouldn't be to get even. The instinct of the healthy Christian shouldn't be, let me get what's mine. Let me get what I know I deserve. I'm going to give them what they've got coming. That shouldn't be the healthy Christian's instinct. Rather, the instinct of the healthy Christian is to extend grace and mercy when others perhaps would extend rage and revenge. Now, I was raised by this principle. I was taught that if there's any way to neutralize the conflict, even if it means you losing something, do that. I was raised where you just, you can, if you can take the higher road to neutralize what's going on, you do that. That there's something bigger than getting even. Today, I see it as something bigger than getting even is believing the gospel. Now, this is consistent with, with meekness. I know we, we talk some about humility in our, in our culture, but we often don't talk about meekness in our society, in our culture. But meekness is a form of humility. Meekness is having the right and the power to crush. Uh, the right, and the, so it would be just and fair. All right, that's what I mean by you. You would have the, the right, perhaps even legally, you would have the right to, to crush and the power to crush and to be tough. Yet, in the midst of this conflict, you choose to extend mercy by being tender, which is the greater strength. It is more powerful to show meekness than to have revenge. You see this on perfect display in no better form and in no better way than when you see Jesus Christ submitting himself to humanity, living every day for nearly 33 years on this planet of fallenness, being treated the way he was treated, hanging on the cross, those religious fanatics screaming at him, uh, mocking him, insulting him while he's hanging on the cross for them. He was... Colossians 1 teaches, well, the, the whole Bible teaches us that Jesus was present at creation, that he's the one who spoke these things into existence, that he knows on the cross how many hairs is on the person of this one guy throwing a rock at him. He, has, he upholds the universe. This is Jesus. And in this moment of conflict, this man insults him. It's recorded in history. They insult him and curse him and mock him and say, if you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from that cross. Meekness is what was present as he stayed on the cross and endured that mockery. Because he could have. He would have the right to. But he chose not to. To save that ridiculous person screaming that. To save this ridiculous person preaching right now. This is who Jesus is. You see, if you live your life seeking revenge and, and living for retaliation and, and getting right, and you're the sheriff, you know, like you're the world's judge, you're going to become over time a very miserable and bitter person, very angsty. But again, living in this light of what Jesus is teaching here, I was raised, I was raised in a way that, um, that if someone punches you or hits you, that you take it, that you don't retaliate that you prove to be big enough to receive it and stand, to be able to, to receive their best and biggest shot, and you still stand. You don't have to retaliate. But I was also taught 
that if it became obvious that someone wasn't content with, with merely a punch or two, right? That someone was going to continue and do some work on you. That you must defend yourself. That you must try to do your best to end the conflict swiftly and peaceably. Growing up, that was the headlock for me, right? <laughs> I'd put you in the headlock or I'd sit on you. I was a really big kid. <clears throat> it neutralized things swiftly, <laughs> quickly, somewhat peaceably. You see, often retaliation only perpetuates the trouble. It doesn't really make things truly better. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't reconcile the differences and the conflict. The point is, don't go looking for trouble, but if trouble finds you, look for a peaceable way out. Look for mercy. And if you're in real danger, do what's necessary to end it or to get away from it. So the point here is basically, it begs the question, do I have uh, reflexive revenge that's anchored in my pride or do I have reflexive mercy that's, that's, that's found and anchored in humility and meekness? When I'm wronged, when I'm insulted, is the, is the reflex revenge, retaliation, or is it through meekness and humility, is it extending grace and mercy? You see, we're born, all of us are born with a desire to chase after revenge. That's instinct. It's instinct. Revenge is instinctual. We're reborn. We're made new. When God saves us and changes us, when his Holy Spirit comes within us and performs the miracle of all miracles, a magnificent work of grace in our lives. When we're reborn, we have now a newfound desire to give mercy. And oftentimes when someone is rude or when they're cruel, when they're hurtful and harmful, if we seek the way of humility and meekness, things will settle quickly. It's when we don't and when we can't let things go that things seem to, to escalate. Now, these are more basic conflicts. I'm not naive. I'm not an idiot. Not in this way. I know that not all conflicts are the same in nature. I understand that for many who are with us today, uh, your story is marked by physical abuse and sexual assault. And taking these teachings into those conflicts, it's not safe and it's not wise. And I don't think it's what Jesus was referring to. If you've been assaulted, if you find yourself being assaulted, run, call for help. Don't wait around. Don't ever think of your pastor of saying, stay in something like that. Don't hear that. That's not what I'm saying. If that happens, do not extend mercy. In that moment, you get away, you find safety, you find help as soon as possible, okay? But you know, still, this sort of behavior that Jesus is calling forth is revolutionary. This is totally different. And again, I'm not sure if Jesus meant for these things to be taken literally or if he was using these uh, relatively striking examples to get people to think. But wisdom would tell us that, that we should take other Christian principles into consideration, other passages into consideration when you're trying to figure out how to apply this truth. Again, I believe that Jesus is concerned with a larger principle and not particular. Like, is this true in sexual assault? Is this true with physical abuse? Is this true with this scenario, this scenario? Not getting caught in the details here, but looking at the big picture. So the big picture would say, do you have an instinctive reflex that's anchored in revenge or mercy. 
When you're wronged, is it pride or humility? When you're, when you're taken advantage of, is it retaliation or is it grace? When you're stolen, is it greed or is it generosity? Is it getting even or is it giving? This is the principle at work here. And Jesus sums up this teaching with a very practical viewpoint. I mean, he breaks it down to us on a very elementary level, which I appreciate. In verse 31, and as you wish that others do to you, do so to them. This is known as the golden rule. Jesus says that Christians are to treat others the way we want others to treat us. And this calls for us to treat others with respect, regardless of their conduct towards us, regardless of their color, regardless of their class, regardless of their creed. Why? Because this is how we want to be treated ourselves, right? This calls us to not be concerned with keeping a score, but freely extending grace, freely extending mercy. Why? Because we want that. We want this. We would find this a lot easier, though, if Jesus called us to love those who love us, right? <laughs> that would be a lot easier. It'd be a lot easier if he said, show mercy to those who are merciful to you. Be generous in giving to those who are going to be generous in giving to you in return. Love those who are going to love you well. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says this in verse 32 and following. If you love those who love you, what difference, what difference does the gospel make? What difference am I making in that story? If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend and share to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Now, do you see the logic that Jesus is working on here? Sinners right? He, and, and we understand, and Jesus would totally agree that we're all sinners, okay? All of us are sinners. But in context here, he's talking about sinner as in juxtaposed to that of saint, all right? So, so those who haven't been made new, those who are on the outside window shopping the Christian life and experience, those who haven't become born again from within, so in this way, he's using this term as, as sinners because we all know that we're sinners repenting. We're sinners trying to believe the gospel, believing the gospel. It's making sense to our hearts. We're, we're seeing Jesus and cherishing him, believing him a little bit more and more every day. All right? But he says here, these sinners, those who aren't believers in Christ, these people easily and naturally love those who love them, do good to those who do good to them, share with those who share with them. But Jesus says that this is simple. He says this is easy, but it's not merciful. This is expected. This isn't unique. This is just and fair, right? Living this way isn't sacrificial. Living this way isn't gracious and merciful, but it is more contractual. It's contractual, but there's no mercy here. If you do this good for me, then I will do this good for you. Anyone can love those who love them and treat them well. This sort of heart says, I will love you as long as I'm being loved. But once you stop loving me, I'll stop loving you. Or once my needs are no longer being met, I'm gonna stop caring for you. But as long as you care for me and meet my needs, I will meet your needs and care for you. Contractual. You see, this isn't Christianity. This is not Christianity, though this is common amongst us all. This is how natural man handles relationships. 
somewhat contractually. The animal world, to a large extent, operates this way, contractually. Don't bite the hand that feeds you. Bite the UPS man, not your owner. Pets understand this, right? You see, ultimately, this is about loving yourself rather than loving others when you really get down to it. The world loves those who love them. This takes zero heart change. Only the people of God, God's sons and daughters, his children, those changed and empowered by Jesus can love this way. Now, now here is the unique Christian way. That's the common way. Now, here's the unique Christian way. Here's what it looks like when God changes our hearts. And it starts in verse 35. But love your enemies. That is a different story. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons, or you will prove to be sons and daughters of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus says, when you come across those who, who won't return favors, who, who will not receive what you give with humility, gratitude, and thankfulness, when you come across those people who hate you and use you, who cheat you and steal from you, who, who never do you any good, love those people. That is special. Do good to those people. That is making quite a statement. Share with those people and don't expect anything in return. You might not get much in return today in this life, but God sees, God knows, and God will one day reward you in a great way, he says, for this sort of belief in generosity. Living this way makes it very clear that your treasure isn't here, that your hope isn't in your name, your reputation, your pride, your possessions, your stuff, your money. After all, God is kind and gracious with those who are ungrateful and evil. Those who identify with Jesus, those who are part of the kingdom of God, the followers of Jesus who freely give away and share, they not only obey Jesus' teaching that he's giving to us here by living a certain way, but they're showing, they're proving in a way that they're true followers of God. Essentially, Christians are to live and give in such a way that it's obvious to everyone that their treasure isn't here and that their identity isn't wrapped around their stuff, their money, their possessions, or what others may think of them. Now, if do unto others as you've had them do unto you isn't enough for us, that's what he just told us basically, right? That, that fortune cookie of the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Such a pithy saying. But if that's not enough, Jesus breaks down to a superior motive for mercy that we're to extend, if we stop there in verse 35, we could all go and just try harder to treat others the way we want to be treated. So the motive is still somewhat selfish, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He's getting deeper with us, right? He's like, after all, you don't want to be treated that way, do you? Oh, no, I don't. So I'm going to start, you know, so it's almost some sort of like leaning Christian karma if we're not careful. If we stop there, it's just go do good to get good. Now that is certainly not Christian. That is certainly not all that Jesus is getting to. So he takes it a step further. And this is where it really gets down to the heart. Verse 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Now notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, be merciful because I said so. <laughs> that would have been enough, technically. Um, he doesn't even say, be merciful to those who show you mercy. 
Show mercy to those who are helping themselves and will be thankful. He doesn't say be merciful to those who will return it. He says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Now, this is where the student of scripture must ask, well, how is the father merciful? Well, Jesus gives us a clue back in verse 35. Do you see it? Look in verse 35. He is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Friends, this is a synopsis of the gospel. In short, the gospel is this. The creator, God, is kind and gracious to ungrateful and evil people. Paul puts it this way in my favorite passage of scripture in all the Bible. At my funeral, if for whatever reason my family doesn't read this, stand up and read it loudly. All right? Interrupt this. Say, I've just got something. The Lord laid something on my heart, okay? And just go for it. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead. So if you just stop right there, everything we get is grace. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, speaking of Lucifer, Satan, that's pretty intense, huh? This is how we're all born. The spirit that is not working, the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us, not just some, among whom all of us once lived in the passions of our flesh, seeking revenge, not extending mercy, getting what's mine, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature essentially children of wrath, just like everybody else, like the rest of mankind. This is all of us. This was our nature. So if God doesn't touch humanity in this state, if he doesn't intervene, it's just and fair. We should not be blown away uh, through the doctrine of reformed theology that certain people are in heaven and certain people aren't. We should be blown away, astounded, appalled that there's one person in heaven. Like, who are we to think we deserve anything? when you consider who we are in our natural rebellious state. We think a lot of ourselves though. I do. But God, being gracious and kind, but God being rich in mercy, not because of stuff that we've done, but simply because of the great love with which he loved us. Who's the us? dead in our sin. <laughs> That's why it's grace. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. And it's not just life, it's who we have life with. He made us alive together with Christ. Now that union is, the, <laughs> is so important to our hope and our salvation. If we're just brought to life, that's, that's cool, but it's, it's not saving us. We're brought to life and united with Christ. We are one with him. Now that is significant. That is special. Made us alive together with Christ. Paul stops and he just throws in the, by the way, by grace you've been saved. If I have to point this out explicitly, I will. This is grace. And then he gets back to it and, his, and he raised us up with him. That union is there with him. And he seated us again with him in the heavenly places 
in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might just show off. He might just show us the immeasurable riches of grace in kindness in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Again, this is not of your own doing. Hear this clearly. It is simply the gift of God. It's not a result of things that you could do or not do, earn or fail. This is not a result of your works so that no one would be able to boast or brag or compare. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for these good works which God prepared a long, long time ago beforehand that we should should walk in them. Friends, the creator God is kind and gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Friend, if God didn't do this, we would have no hope. And now you may think, no hope? Wait a minute, I have hope. My life's all right. What on earth do you mean no hope? You clearly don't know my story. Well, you see, my friend, you and I, whether we like to admit it, whether it's easy for us to come to grips with or not, the Bible teaches us very clearly that we're sinners, that we're not perfect. And our sin is is not only against one another, the Bible teaches that it's mainly against God. And in this way, you and I are rebels We're rebels against the creator of the universe, the one who formed us, the one who loves us, the one who has a unique plan for us. We're rebelling against him. We're sinners, and we're sinners by birth, and we're sinners by choice. We're sinners by birth in that it's just uh, we, we inherit this sin nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve, right? It's just part of who we are, okay? But then we're also, because of this, we're also sinners by choice. We choose sin. So many times a day, we choose to sin. We can't help it. When you really get onto it, we just can't help ourselves. It's part of who we are. We sin by doing bad things and we sin by failing to do all the good things that we should and that we could. But the most significant issue in regards to our sin is that it separates us from God. That is the fundamental problem. It's not that I make you mad when I hurt you. It's not that you make me mad when you hurt me. The most significant issue The most fundamental problem that we have is our sin separates us from God. And the Bible teaches us that God must punish sin and that he must punish it or else he'll cease to be God. And that he's just in punishing us. That it's fair for him to punish us. It's right for him to punish us. And if he doesn't, he'd cease to be God. He would cease to be just. He would cease to be good. He would cease to be perfect And rather than allowing us to continue to rebel and to continue to run away from him, he graciously intervenes. We're running towards a godless eternity and he graciously stops our rebellion, stops, calls a timeout on our eternal funeral and intervenes. Why? Because the creator God is kind and gracious to the ungrateful and the evil. Romans 5.8 tells us that God shows his love, love for us and that while we were still sinners, dead, cold, hard-hearted to him, Christ died for us because God is kind and gracious Romans 3, 23 and following says, all have sinned and fall short of perfection, short of the righteous requirement, short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a wrath absorber, as a wrath sponge. 
to step in the place of sinners and take on what they deserve by his blood, this propitiation by his blood to be, re- to be received by faith. Why? Because God is kind and he's gracious to the ungrateful and the evil. John three sixteen. you know it, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not die, will not perish, but will have eternal life. Why? Because God is kind and because God is gracious to the ungrateful and to the evil. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Why? Because God is kind and God is gracious to the ungrateful and to the evil. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who was perfect and knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become good enough. We might become the very righteousness of God. Why? Because God is kind and because God is gracious. 1 Peter 3 says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous suffering for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. That's our first and most primary fundamental problem is we're separated from God. Christ came to reconcile us back to God, to bring us to God, to fix what our sin has destroyed because God is kind and because God is gracious to ungrateful and evil people. Friend, the Bible teaches that at the end of your life, you're gonna stand before a just and holy God and you're going to be judged. You're either going to be judged on the basis of your own righteousness or lack thereof, or you're going to be judged according to the righteousness of another. Well, friend, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is that other person. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness, of perfect obedience to God, not for his own well-being, but for his people, those who would look to him by faith and believe him. In this way, he's done for you what you could never do for yourself because he's kind, because he's gracious. But not only has Jesus lived the life of perfect obedience, he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice, to satisfy the righteousness of God who's been offended by our sin. Why? Because God is kind and God is gracious. Friend, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You believe this, you're saved. You're born again. You're made new. You have hope of eternity in paradise with God. You simply believe it. You see, when it comes down to mercy, one of the main issues that we have, one of our main problems, one of our main predicaments that humanity is facing in regards to mercy is that we're so prejudiced in regards to who we're going to extend mercy towards. We forget the radical mercy that we have received. And we only show mercy to those who are kind to us, who are thankful for our mercy But imagine with me what our city, what Nashville, Tennessee, imagine what Middle Tennessee, imagine what our world would look like if if we would or could look, what it could look like if we showed mercy like that of God, like he shows us to the extent of its scope, um, to the extent of its magnitude, of its intent, of its size. What if we showed mercy to others the way God shows mercy to us? Imagine if we extended, freely extended mercy and grace to those who are ungrateful and to those who are evil toward us, toward you. 
Friend, our world is broken. It's so broken, I have to say, so broken. Our world is so messed up. You read the paper. You watch the evening news. You check out CNN's Twitter feed. It's awful. It's horrific. Santa Fe High School, horrible. Clayton County, Georgia, terrible. Hate, racism, violence. What's wrong with our world? What's wrong with it? I mean, many people have provided solutions to our brokenness, but what's the true answer? Why are things so bad? We all know things aren't the way they should be, but why? And how do we fix it? It's terrible, but it's true that we want quick fixes, and we often think that we're so clever. But what is something that's sure? What is something that's true? What is something that's basic and fundamental for us to have hope in for today that things will change? I mean, we're, we're told and taught that you keep God's commandments and, li- and life is best. So what is it, even regard, in regards to Christ's teaching and, and God's commandments, what is something that we should be concentrating on? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with our world and why? What's the root cause? How do we make things better? How do we make things right? Hopefully you watch the news and you read the Twitter feeds and you ask that question. Hopefully you're not numb to it. Hopefully you want something better. Well, I believe first off, our priorities are wrong. You see, the Bible teaches us how we can get things right. And I don't want you to get lost in the details. Look at the fundamental issues and work out from there. So many argue the answers, but Jesus gives us the best answer. But you see, we, we love ourselves. <laughs> we love ourselves, and so our answers most often start with man, right? With mankind, with us. But the only way to truly relate well man to man is first be reconciled to God. Our priorities must be set right. Do not start with loving your enemy. Do not start with showing mercy to others. Start by loving God. Start with loving him, being reconciled with him. Then and only then will you be able to relate well to others and treat others this way. Our culture and most of our government starts with man, not with God. But if you don't start with God, you'll never figure out the man-to-man relationship. Those who have sibling rivalry, particularly you kids, right? You haven't learned to fake it yet, right? Adults just tend to fake it and put on a good face at reunions. But kids don't. They're, they're not frauds like us. They're just open and honest. They, they hate their sister today. Don't say hate. Well, I don't really, I don't like her a lot. Don't say that either. So you just learn to lie or be quiet. But you know down deep, particularly those who are kids and adults, that we often don't don't relate well to our siblings. We don't relate well to our parents. We don't relate well to our kids. A lot of us are struggling with our spouses. A lot of us are struggling with racism in our hearts. We don't say what we're feeling on Facebook because we would be killed. We don't relate well to government. We don't relate well to neighbor. We don't relate well to our work associates. We spend our adult life putting up with stuff. You see, loving your enemy, extending mercy, 
Friend, this is the application of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the doctrine, the core, the core of the gospel is first being reconciled to God. To put it another way, loving your enemy and your neighbor is a fruit of the root issue. The root issue is being loved by God, knowing God, being known by him, and loving him. If you want to figure out the man-to-man stuff, you first got to start with God. If you want to love your spouse right, it's not demanding more from them, and it's not putting up with more. It's learning how you're loved in the gospel and receiving love from God. This is where we have to start. Organizations, institutions, governmental policy, there's been so much attention given to fix our problems, helping us cope with our issues, helping us with our dilemma, but we're still in trouble. Why? Because what's needed isn't mechanical. What's needed is organic. We can't reduce the Christian life to a checklist. This would, a checklist would just cause us to get caught up in legalism and moralism, comparison. It's, simple, uh, it's simply just mere religion. Rather, what's needed is first, primarily, fundamentally, a heart change. The gospel taking root in our hearts. The Holy Spirit bearing fruit from within our lives and our hearts. Not merely us white-knuckling religion and doing this and doing that, doing what's right, doing what we're supposed to do, saying the right things. But to where it begins to work itself out organically and and supernaturally from, from within. You see, these things are possible. What Jesus is asking us to do here will certainly happen very ordinarily when one becomes a Christian, when they're regenerated, when the Holy Spirit makes a person new and then gives them the power to live differently. The fruit and the proof, the evidence of the Spirit will manifest itself in any person who he takes up residence in, the regenerated one who's trusting him. But you and I, we we often try showing mercy without first living in the mercy of God and in the grace of God. We, we try being nice, we try being kind and cordial without a constant awareness of the knowledge of the gospel fueling these actions at a very deep motive level. Basically, our obedience and our desire to obey is separate from what God gives us and from what Jesus has done for us. In other words, our doing isn't fueled by the gospel. It's not motivated from the gospel. So this becomes contractual. Do you see this? We we do these things contractually in our own efforts, in our own strengths, not being conformed and informed by the gospel. So over time, what happens is we drift to becoming legalistic, moralistic doers who pridefully and arrogantly seek to still white-knuckle the Christian life and just put on a good face, say the right thing, do the right thing, love my enemy, show mercy, be, be kind, and we inevitably reduce the Christian life to that of doing good things. This isn't the Christian life. Doing good things is a very small part of it, but if that's all you have, you don't have the Christian life. And I guarantee you're not having fun. And friend, if you've said no to the Christian life that looks like this, of just a lot of doing of good things without really thinking through it, without it really coming from a deeper motive level, just a lot of pride and comparison. If you said no to a Christian life that looks like that, I'm with you. You've said no to a form of the Christian life, but it's not the true Christian life, not the one that Christ Jesus died to supply. 
You see, the Christian life is more about being and less about doing. It's more about believing and less of acting in a certain way. And I'm convinced that this is one of the greatest problems facing the Christian church today. This is a great problem facing church-going people today. This is a problem facing religious people today, is we've reduced Christianity to doing and acting and not believing and being. In John chapter six, Jesus was asked, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And he didn't give him a checklist. He said, believe me. But we complicate it. Well, I wanna close with a reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter five. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with all of them. Be patient with the idle. Be patient with the faint-hearted. Be patient with the weak. And see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another within the church and to everyone. Well, that's everyone even outside the church. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. What's God's will for my life? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Well, that's what I have. <clears throat> what must we do? Where do we go from here? We must run to Jesus. We gotta run to Jesus. We have to run to Jesus. Every single one of us, we gotta run to Jesus. You want to know if you're a healthy Christian? When you hear me say, let's run to Jesus, if you're an unhealthy Christian, you don't run. If you're an unhealthy Christian, you think about somebody else. Friend, let's run to Jesus. Let's run to the cross. Christian, as well as those who are yet to be saved, all of us in this room, we must run to the cross. Let's embrace the gospel. Let's believe Jesus. Let's trust God when he says simply that we're just good enough because of Jesus. Let's believe this. Let's receive, just take. Let's take his grace. Let's take his mercy. Let's take his forgiveness. It's there. Don't take it reluctantly. Take it. It was a joy to give it to you. It was love to provide it for you. Take and receive. Then and only then can we begin to treat others the way that we should which is the way that we want to be treated, which is essentially the way that we've been treated by God through Jesus. But friend, first you've got to be reconciled to God and remember he's kind and gracious. So my Christian friends in the room, I encourage you to live empowered by the Holy Spirit because you can't do this. Stop, stop it. Stop, stop, stop. Stop trying to do this on your own. And I'm telling myself, we just keep trying to do this by ourselves. And it makes us angsty. It makes us bitter. It makes us rude. We can't keep doing this in our own efforts. We can't continue doing this because the preacher said to, because the text says so, because we're guilty or shame-filled, or we're comparing ourselves, or we're proud, or we have envy. Christian, you'll never get the man-to-man -man relationship fixed or functional until you're living in light of the gospel moment by moment, second by second, repenting early and often. Never. You've got to work the vertical constantly or you'll never figure out the horizontal. 
those yet to be made Christians here today, you're never going to get the man-to-man relationship fixed or functional until you've been reconciled to God, having the God-man restored. But good news is he's kind and he's gracious. He's kind and he's gracious. And you're reconciled with God by being justified. Not by your works, not by the things that you've done, not by your efforts or deeds, but by faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Be encouraged. All of us should be encouraged, but particularly those who aren't Christians in this room. I want you to consider this. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9. If, all right, now, right there, the rest of this takes humility. This if is contingent upon your pride. All right, so take that. Now let's go here now. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, it's not complicated, you'll be saved. Don't make this any harder than it needs to be. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Friend, the only way you can receive the benefit of Christ's life and death is by humbling yourself and putting your trust in him and in him alone. You do that, you're made a Christian. You're reborn. You've been regenerated. You've been declared righteous and good enough by God. You've been, you've, you've been adopted into his family. You've been forgiven of everything that you've ever done and ever will do. You're already beginning the uh, eternal life that's promised to you. And the Holy Spirit begins to indwell you, to empower you to live the way that he's called you to live. You believe this and you're saved. I encourage you to humble yourself and gain life. Well, now those who are Christians, it's time for us to remember and consider and celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Friend, I want you to remember. Be reminded that what Jesus is asking for us to do here in the text is something that he did already for us. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter two. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves and let each of you not look out only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Essentially what Paul is saying is have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to. Right? But he freely gave of that. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friend, Jesus did this for you. He did this for us because God is kind and because God is gracious. So Christian, this is a special time for you to remember this mercy of God, this grace of God that you have received that you have experienced through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Remember how you've been loved. Remember how you've been treated. Because it's when we forget this that we're slow to show mercy and extend mercy to others. So I want you to take this time to remember. Remembering is the very heart of communion. As you remember, as you take this bread, you're gonna take this bread. It represents, it's symbolic of the body of Christ that he lived for us. All right, this speaks of his representative work on our behalf. He lived a perfect life for us. You're gonna take this bread and you're gonna dip it into the juice or the wine based on your age or conscience, that red liquid symbolic of the blood of Christ that he shed forth for us on the cross in his death where he wasn't just a good guy dying. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and he was suffering and dying in our place, absorbing the wrath of God for us. He did this for us. He was our substitute. He 
was condemned in our place for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. Friend, this is what we remember. Think on this when you come and take. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your help. Thank you for your grace, your kindness, your mercy, your gentleness with us. Thank you so much. God, thank you for being kind and gracious and sending Jesus to us, full of meekness and humility, full of courage and bravery, Lord, to walk this earth for us, as us, and to die in our place. Spirit, thank you for your generosity and coming into our hearts and making us new, guiding us in the way, Lord, producing humility where there's such pride. You just, you're so active in our hearts. And I pray that we don't quench you. I pray that we don't uh, squelch you. I pray that we don't uh, resist you and your work in our hearts, but that we freely press into the gospel and see you transform us from the inside out. Lord, protect us as we scatter today. Protect us from pride and moralism. Protect us from trying to white knuckle the Christian life and just going to go show mercy because that's what the preacher talked about. Lord, let us first press deeply into the gospel. Lord, let us press in until we're wowed by grace, until it's something that's shaping our hearts and our minds. And then, with the Spirit's help, we will be changed in such a way over time that we're able to, to extend mercy and grace to those who hate us, who revile us, and who spurn our name as evil. Lord, help us not forget that we are ungrateful and evil, and you suffered for us. Let that inform the way that we handle others. Let that humble us. Lord, be with my friends who aren't Christians yet in this room. Lord, would you give them humility that's needed? Would you give them the meekness needed, Lord, to admit their need for you and to trust you? Give them faith, Lord, to, to believe you. Give them eyes to, to clearly see you. Give them a new heart to experience you. God, let them have fun with life, with true life, with real life, life that's free, the life of forgiveness and grace and mercy. Lord, be with your church as we now share in communion and remembering you. Add your special blessing to this time, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.